0: Hello and welcome to the Arsenal Beat. We're coming to you just hours after the transfer deadline passed and it seemed to be something of a one-way window for Arsenal. I'm Mark Bryce from PA Media and I'm joined by The Telegraph, Sam Dean and Charles Watts of Goal to dissect and analyse Arsenal's window as well as the legacy left at the Emirates Stadium by one Pierre-Emerick Aubameyang and what is next for Mikel Arteta and Edu. Guys, we'll go into Abamyang's exit in more detail a little later on, but let's start with a, a window which has surprised plenty of people: Kalasinach, Chambers, Maitland-Niles, Balogun, Mary, Abamyang, all allowed to leave in January, as near as makes no difference, for no sort of fee or or payments. Um, well, the majority of those names don't exactly scream top four finish. Charles, it, the surprise really, I think, is is that none of them have been replaced, isn't it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I think certainly, certainly, Abamyang isn't it? I think most of them you can kind of look at it and think well minutes wise it wasn't it's not really going to be that much of a big deal because they hadn't really featured I think Ainsley Ainsley was a surprise given in terms of the timing not that he was let go but you let Ainsley go at the end of the month really and I think that proved to be a bit of a costly mistake because I think he would have probably started Arsenal's last four games in January after the Man City match and that having him around would have allowed him to stick probably with a four-two-three-one formation rather than going to the four-three-three that hasn't worked. I think that's proved to be a costly error. They should have just waited rather than basically letting Roma strong arm and into doing it earlier on in the window. And then the Orba one, I mean, that's, that's the big gamble, isn't it? I think no one's got too much of an issue with letting Aubameyang go because history suggested that was going to happen once you fall out of Mikel and he, Puts, casts you to one side, you don't tend to come back from that, do you? I think the big thing is the fact that they haven't found a replacement, even just one for the short term to help get them through until the end of the season. And that That's the big gamble and ultimately results are going to decide whether whether it pays off or not. If they don't get the results, then I think Arteta and Eddie will open themselves up to a whole lot of criticism that's going to come their way and that criticism is going to be justified.
0: I'm taking maitland Lloris has read because because Charles already mentioned it. I, I don't want to put words into your mouth, but given that I know you're you're a fan, would you say Chambers would be one that, that surprised you? It seemed to come from nowhere as well, didn't it? That one, well, no one, no one was across it, and it just seemed to drop that day, didn't it?
2: Yeah, I mean, without uh, revealing too much uh, behind the curtain of the sort of media world, um, Villa have got clearly uh, uh, they've got on, on a drive to. Keep things very quiet in their deals, and Danny Ings was similarly um, sudden in the summer. And Ings actually did an interview afterwards in which he said he wasn't even allowed to tell his family or or anyone, so nobody knew apart from him, and his agent, and the club. Uh, my understanding is that was very much the case with Chambers as well, although there were whispers about it, but people were denying it. Um, and as journalists, if you, you can't report something that's been denied to you by official people in good places. So. You know, yes, we failed on that one journalistically, but uh, there are always reasons behind that. In terms of the deal itself, um, yeah, uh, I don't really get that one at all. Um, and as you say, I am a, I am a Chambers fan. Uh, I think he's, I think he's a really good player uh, and better than people give him credit for. Because I mean, it, 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 first point, simple point is, who would you rather have a right back, him or Cedric? if Tommy ass is injured? And the answer is Chambers, 100%. And if it's if it's not, then I'm afraid you're wrong. Um, not if, <laughs> if, it, if it's not, then it's probably Ainsley Mate Niles, isn't it? <laughs> well, yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, they've also let Pablo Mari go, obviously. Uh, so there's a potential issue, at centre-back, if there are any injuries. So he could have filled in there. We know he can play midfield, and Arteta's never wanted to do that. Which, you know, fair enough. But the main thing is, he was out of contract in the summer. So there was really, you know, you know he was going to go he's not on the, huge, the biggest wages in the world. It wouldn't have cost that much to keep him. And they've not got a transfer fee for it. I know there's been some sort of some sort of claim that they're going to you know, make money through wage savings and stuff, but that's not going to be significant. Certainly not at the same level that Aubameyang and 18 months of his contract is. So I don't really know what they've gained beyond a couple of million quid here and there uh, for losing Chambers, but I feel like they've potentially lost someone who could be quite useful. So that one, I don't entirely get, uh, but... Uh, as, as Charles says time will tell on this and I guess we should say that there are no cup games for Arthur to worry about they just have the league to focus on so they don't need a deep squad they, they don't need a loads of options but they will next year so what are they going to do then buy another 10 fringe players because they're going to need fringe players again so yeah it's an interesting one and yes that Chambers one slightly baffled
1: me OK I can, you can hear the pain in his voice can't you Mark Let me tell you <laughs> <laughs>
0: just wait till they sell Odegaard in the summer you touched on it a little bit there, Sam. Um, the, the cutting of the wage bill has been something of a legacy, almost, of the, of this Edu and Arteta reign. We were in our WhatsApp group this morning having a chat about it and I was saying, yeah, but, you know, they've still finished eighth. There, there, there seems to be a, a lack of being able to manage things financially on one hand and then do the plate spinning of also keeping results going well on the pitch is it's a difficult difficult thing to juggle really charles isn't it and do you think has this window surprised you with how how brutal they've been in those cost cutting measures
1: yeah it's definitely surprised me um i think ultimately you know the summer's going to be key they've, they've like you said they've freed up a big amount on their wage bill and you look at that and think they must you know, there must be planning for a relatively big summer and that's what a lot of January has been about. And in a way, you've got to kind of <laughs> kind of praise them, I suppose, maybe, that they haven't panicked in January when they've been under probably an awful lot of pressure, um, certainly from people outside the club, to do so. And maybe they've got this long-term plan and they want to stick to it. And that that plan has always been into, um, sort of centred on the summer and the players that they're going to bring in. And the work that they've done certainly this month will allow them, you would think, to do that because, you know, what, Orba was the highest earner, you know, 250 basic, I think, isn't it? You know, potentially up to 350 grand. Lacazette will be gone in the summer, who's the second highest earner, uh, I would say, or maybe third. And, you know, even Klasnach was on big, big money because he came on as a free transfer. And, you know, the, the savings over the last couple of years vast. And I know you say yeah, they finished eight for the last couple of years, which is true, but I think, really, those they were still... That was still the sort of Champions League wage bill when they were finishing eighth. Um, It's only now that you're really seeing the massive reductions come into play and certainly in the summer as well. Um, And if they can somehow get themselves into the Champions League, and this is the gamble, isn't it? Because they've given themselves a good chance of getting themselves into the Champions League. They've got got a really good opportunity over these next 17 games. And yet they've gambled with on going through these 17 games with this threadbare squad. If they can manage to do it and it pays off, then you would say that the sort of squad balancing exercise that they've clearly gone on this month is going to stand them in really good stead for the summer in terms of adding to it, um, being able to offer you know players very big wages plus you'd have the lure of the Champions League and that put them in a really big really great position. If it all goes wrong in the next 17 games. Then, then you, as I said earlier, you know, all the criticism that comes our terror and Eddie's way is going to be absolutely justified because ultimately you're going to have to say the blame is going to lay squarely on them. Um, so, yeah, it's a, it's a big, big few months coming up for, for Arsenal and the hierarchy.
2: What I would say is that as journalists, we all know the club's financial situation, how that's been affected in the last couple of years. And I think most fans are also pretty aware of that. They've seen the financial results the last few years. They know they're out of European football this season, haven't played Champions League for five years. I mean, Arsenal took pay cuts during the pandemic. Um, other clubs didn't do that. Uh, the, the The situation at Arsenal financially is pretty perilous, which is why in the summer, when they suddenly splashed £150 million on new players, there was quite a lot of surprise um, from, from our part as journalists, I think from fans as well. I don't think anybody expected Arsenal to be you know, among the biggest spenders in Europe, if not probably the biggest spenders in Europe, I think we spent more, top of my head. And I wonder now if if this January should be looked at through that context in the sense that they went so hard in the summer that they had to make clawbacks now. And I think, understandably, when fans see the club investing so heavily in the summer, they assume that's going to continue into the next window and go, yeah, the rebuild's on. They're in Mikel, is going to be huge. But I don't think that's quite realistic given Arsenal's financial situation. So... I wonder if this window, and we know they had money to spend, and they were willing to spend it if they found the right player, but I I wonder if the decisions they've taken this window, with players going out especially, and not being willing to splash a lot of money on someone they're not entirely sure on, is a consequence of those financial realities, which seemed for a few weeks to be sort of brushed under the carpet in the summer when everyone thought it was just multi-million pound deals, here we go, left, right and centre, and this is a reminder of where Arsenal are as a, as a business.
1: Well, I think the net set of results are due, you know, pretty soon, aren't they? Possibly even even next month. And those results are going to show losses of probably around 150 million pounds, which is, you know, very very dramatic. would be the biggest losses in Arsenal's history. So yeah, absolutely. I think that 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 needs to be taken into account. And I think what's going to be interesting as well is the level that the wage bill is now. We're all kind of assuming, and I, I was just doing it in my last answer. That that's free up space for you know a fair few to come in, in the summer. But what could be interesting is uh, is this the norm at Arsenal now? Is this what Cronky has kind of set them and said this is a wage bill you're going to have to operate to for the long term unless you get yourselves back into the Champions League? It might it might even be the norm now. We just, we just don't don't know at this stage.
0: I mean, there's there's probably going to be a, a contingency, isn't there? For you know you'd like to think a football club has got this almost like a list. I can imagine a whiteboard that's got you know this is your budget if you get a Champions League. The, you, we can't discount the Europa League. I don't think. That squad now is good enough for the top four when you look at the teams around them but Europa League is better than nothing as we know but it's something Sam touched on there and, and Mikel Arteta answered a question about it in, in the press conference recently where he said we're only interested in, in players that will take us to the next level now I know fans can uh, accuse him of just paying lip service to the fact they didn't bring anyone in but you've got to look at that is if they couldn't get those players in they couldn't get the players that take them to the next level or that they believe wouldn't take them to the next level do they deserve a little bit of a pat on the back and the credit for not buckling to that pressure and signing more of these players who in two years' time need to be moved on off of big contracts. Do you know what I mean? Is, is it just not turning the wheel if you just go out in January, they bought in three players that were OK, you know, like your marries and things like that. Sam, I know mm-hmm. you've got a full list of them, basically, haven't you? But they, they've done that for so long now, the summer window just gone aside, where they've gone out and bought players in that haven't been good enough or haven't had... The right motivation or have signed for the wrong reasons. So does the club leave themselves in a better position to have a, almost a skeleton squad of players that actually want to be there and that are good enough to be there? Is that well, a yeah, I mean,
2: yeah, not uh, not spending is definitely better than spending badly. Um, but at the same time, it's probably fair to say it probably still should have spent something. <laughs> and the fact that Arteta wanted them to and made that pretty clear. I think is a sign that this didn't go to plan this window. I mean, obviously w- what we're all referring to here is a striker situation. Um, we talk about players wanting to be there. I'm not, you know, does, I'm not sure that's necessarily the case with Eddie Kesia, who's obviously turned out contracts and is going to be heading off on a free. Lacazette also heading off on a free. I mean, it's absolutely, it feels to me, unprecedented for a couple of Arsenal sides to have this situation they've got with a striker. They're going to need to buy at least one, at the very least, in the summer, um, probably two. They could, you'd probably argue they need three separate strikers in the summer to come in and back up with Balogun as well, unless Balogun comes back and he's suddenly seen as ready to play every week, which, which I doubt. So my my logic was at the start of the window last month, if you know you're going to, have to spend a load of money on a striker in the, in the summer to take over from Lacazette and Nketiah, then, then it would be, it'd be, benef- it'd be hugely beneficial for him to be there for six months to get settled in, to understand the club, to understand Arteta's system and then be ready to go as of next season, that's not saying they should have necessarily spent 75 million on Alexander Isak and got him in early because they might not think he's worth that. And they clearly don't. They didn't pay for his release clause to be triggered. But there are, uh, while he says we need the, the club needs to get the players to take him to the next level, they're also going to need a sort of a backup player too. They can't just buy two world class strikers this summer, they're going to need a world class striker to lead the line. And somebody else. They're going to have to replace Lacazette like and Nketia. So,
0: I mean, I, I. And, I De Bamian, Arge, sorry. and the Ramiang, like arguably, in there as well, isn't it? You've lost yeah, it. Of course. You've lost a player like that. He needs replacing too, I suppose. Yeah. And I, I say
2: all this without knowing who the answer is. Like, you know, who, who do you buy for as a backup option going forward, as a stri- squad option as a striker? I don't know. Is someone like Valt Veghorst who's gone to Burnley? Is he good enough for Arsenal? Probably not. But you do wonder and think, if you're just looking at absolute first 11 players, that's probably not going to be enough given the situation they're in.
1: I mean, I think what you do, and I know we talked about it in the WhatsApp group. I think so, you know what Simon's saying what, a few days ago that you, you kind of pay possibly but you buy yourself a central striker, an out-and-out number one central striker, and then you you look at a, a player who can play in a variety of positions across the the, the attack the forward line as well. He can play as a central striker, but can play out wide. I'm thinking Jonathan David, someone someone in that sort of mold as well, and then you go out and you get yourself your proper striker who, you know, if things go well is going to start every game. Your your Isak, if that's who you go, or your Calvert Lewin, you, you know, someone you, you go big on that side side of forward. I mean, they've definitely got to bring two in in January. It's not a case of just signing one, is it? I mean two's a necessity is possibly three. You think considering Orba, Lacazette and Enketio are all going to go in a space of three months and your left would just flow bad again as <laughs> your only striker. I know Gabby, Gabby Martinelli's there as well, obviously, who fans have been crying out be given a role centrally and you kind of think that's probably going to happen at some stage now between now and the end of the season um but i mean that's a lot i mean strikers do not come cheap do you if you've got to spend if you've got to buy two or three in the same window it doesn't leave you you wouldn't have thought that leaves you much room to maneuver elsewhere in your squad um so it's going to be a tricky one for them for them to handle it really it really is
0: also worth pointing out that uh, Sam Dean went full QAnon when it came to uh, Arsenal signing Isaac in the January I thought, I thought they had I thought they <laughs> signed <laughs> him. He's, he's already here. He's been here for a few days. There were theories um, uh, Theories abound as to why Arsenal were about signing Isaac yesterday.
1: I think it was about 10.45 at night when you finally decided that you were wrong, wasn't it? And it yeah. wasn't going to You finally let it go at 10.45pm.
2: I, uh, I admit to being a bit taken in by the... Um, social media stuff with the car because that, that picture and who knows could be photoshopped i don't know that picture is definitely queensland road which is which is the road leading to the emirates which is not a road that you would drive down normally it's quite quiet i think it pretty much only leads to the emirates and some flats like it's not yeah. the kind of place you'd go so i was like that's a bit odd um my other th- and, and the issue i have is that um you know we all know people in the club and talk to people in the club everyone i spoke to was like definitely not not going to happen definitely not and then I managed to convince myself that that's exactly what people would say if they were doing it on the sly as part of like the Amazon documentary or something. So I was like, well, n- nothing, there was nothing anyone could say to me that made me think, oh, yeah, it's not going to happen. Because everything that everyone who denied it and said, Sammy being an idiot, was just proving my point in my own mind. So um, it, it really it's, it's a great insight into how these conspiracy theories really take hold. Um, and they actually are causing a lot of problems for people around the world. And I have got a little glimpse of that myself, albeit thankfully not on. Uh, vaccinations, or Trump, or Bill Gates, yeah. or any of the issues like that.
0: I was about to say we—they're um, they're probably more successful than football podcasts. Maybe we should launch a um, conspiracy theories podcast. <laughs> <laughs> we got—we got plenty to go. Anti-vaccine, you know, nine eleven was an inside job. Blah blah blah. Um, let's quickly move on before I say something that we'll have to edit out. Yeah, Emrick Abamiang. That was the one I think. Did we all expect it to happen? Probably not, I guess. But Sam, I'll come to you first on this one. Had had he reached his end, of his, the end of his road at Arsenal, do you think?
2: Uh, yeah, I, I expected it to be alone. That was my expectation. I think that was the expectation throughout the window, um, especially when it became clear that he was not interested in going to Saudi Arabia. So I thought it would be alone. And then basically the situation would be addressed again in, in the summer um, and then last night, late, suddenly that twisted, and, and it became a permanent transfer. And he was, he was gone for good. Uh, I mean, as, as you said at the start of the pod, history suggests there was no way back for him and Arteta. Um, that relationship was clearly broken um, in quite a severe way, um, and I, I can't see you know, not, nothing that Arteta's done as Arsenal manager suggests he would have relented and suddenly let Abamian back and fold. And equally, I don't think Aubameyang was particularly in the mood to do that. And the fact that he turned up in Barcelona without either club, without Barcelona certainly being aware of that, uh, is indicative of, of how keen he was to, to get out of London. Um, what I would say as well is that th- this decision, this is, I've written this piece for, for The Telegraph this morning, this decision is pretty much, in my eyes, the ultimate proof that the long-term rebuild, you know, the process, the project under Arteta, is absolutely the priority of a short-term results. I wondered whether the fact they were within reach of the top four this year and, and that and that Champions League money was almost within their grasp might make them change their approach a bit and to say, look, we've done some big rebuilding things over the last three or four windows. Now's the chance to, to kick on and, and make sure we get over the line this year. I think the Obamian situation proves that the opposite is true. That they've gone. Nothing is bigger and more important than. The overarching process which is you know years we're talking about not the next few months because there's no questioning that losing a Bamiyang and not being willing to bring him back into the squad has made that team weaker whether that's starting 11 or the squad or whatever you can't tell me when they were playing against Burnley the other day and drawing 0-0 that they wouldn't have wanted a Bamiyang on the bench or they wouldn't have had a better option with him on the bench so they are demonstrably weaker as a team because of this decision but that's the price they're willing to pay for the sake of Arteta's long-term rebuild and the cultural reset. Um, whether you agree with it or not, that's just the reality, I
0: think. We've all, we've all covered Aubameyang pretty much for the length of his time at Arsenal. But Charles, I wanted to come to you for this one because you're the, the only Arsenal fan amongst the three of us on, on the pod today. What are his abiding memories of, of Aubameyang at Arsenal? Good, good and bad, I suppose. Start, let's start with good. Let's start with something positive.
1: I mean, there's plenty of good, isn't it? From the moment he came in, I think. I you go back to that first game against Everton, his goal in that, the, and just immediately you knew you'd sign. Arsenal would sign themselves a prolific striker, and who doesn't like having I mean, a prolific striker up front for him? And I mean, his legacy, I think, will probably be always be the FA Cup win, won't it? I think you know he almost single handedly won the FA Cup for Arsenal on his own. Certainly in terms of the semi final and the final and those games against Man City and Chelsea. And at that point, it's just remarkable how quickly it's all spiralled and gone the other way, isn't it? You go back to that to Wembley, which doesn't feel that long ago, and you know Arteta and Aubameyang celebrating together on the pitch. Aubameyang tweeting afterwards that picture, of them with the FA Cup with my manager, he put and then the contract a couple of weeks later. It's just remarkable how much how how it how it's turned around and. I mean, I think ultimately his legacy is going to, unfortunately, just because of the way things have gone, he's going to be remembered a, a fair bit for the way it ended. But you go back to the night like that, FA Cup win. And, and the, the, the night in the Mestaya, it's it's one of my favourite ever Arsenal away games. And, you know, it, like you said, I'm a fan. I've been going to Arsenal games since 1989. I mean, an awful lot of them. And that is right up there as one of my favourite nights following Arsenal. It was just... The stadium, the atmosphere, everything about it—you know, European semi-final was special. And to to perform like that, the individual performance that Aubameyang put in, the quality of the goals, the hat trick, and you know, a really big moment for Arsenal because they went behind in that game. You know, it was one nil. The whole crowd was up, and then it was just like bang. Aubameyang took over, and you know, it was a special performance that night. And um, for me, when I think of him, I think I think of certainly Wembley, but also that that night in Spain.
2: Yeah, that was as as you say, Mark, I'm I'm not an Arsenal fan, but that night in Valencia was one of the best nights I've had in, in this job because as you say, of the atmosphere, even like the weather, it was all just perfect and it was it was brilliant. And that that performance, I, I think for me, in what I've seen with my own eyes in the flesh, is is one of the absolute best, if not the best, centre forward performances I've seen on a big, you know, a big occasion in my in my life. So that one is the is the lingering memory for me. Partly because the FA Cup final was obviously behind um, closed doors, so it was yeah. slightly, slightly flat. Whereas that one was, you know, the noise when he scored that first goal a lot of the karate kick volley, and this sort of the way it just like just dies down. You can just hear the Arsenal fans in the background going mad. I think that was, uh, yeah, that that will be my abiding memory of of him in an Arsenal shirt.
1: That whole run to the fi- to the final, you think? I mean, it wasn't just him. Lacazette played his part in that as well, but it, you know, it was just those two single-handedly taking Arsenal to the final, wasn't it? Goals and assists—they pretty much, I think, scored or set up every single goal in the knockout rounds going through. You know, he was at the very top of his game there, and this was a pretty average Arsenal side as well. You got to remember that Aubameyang came into he scored ninety-two goals. Um, he won himself a golden boot at a time when Arsenal were awful under under. A dreadful manager as well, I have to say. Pretty um, young, yeah. and uh, and, uh, <laughs> and yet he still carried on scoring those goals. And um, you know, he deserves an awful lot of credit for what he achieved at Arsenal. It's just a shame because I thought when he signed that contract, I thought he'd go on and end up being about probably third or fourth in Arsenal's all-time scoring list by the time he finished you know I was really convinced he would go on I remember that live stream he did on Instagram when he signed the contract he said he wanted to become a legend that was a big part of why he stayed he wanted to create a legacy and I genuinely thought he would you I know, mean, he wasn't going to get close to unreal right but I thought he'd get around maybe the Van Persie mark in the all-time list and um, so that's a shame it hasn't quite it hasn't quite worked out like that but um, you know he certainly he certainly leaves a legacy.
0: just got to chuck this in about Valencia because I think it's worthwhile. I've never seen a man's mood change within the space of 24 hours as Charles Watts in in Spain that week, given that the night before we all had dinner and watched Tottenham beat Ajax in the, uh, in the Champions League. <laughs>
1: <laughs> oh my God. I still had like the the feeling in the pit of my stomach that, that night after that goal went in, even the, the first thing I thought about when I woke up in the morning, oh, it's horrendous. I was totally convinced Arsenal to lose to Valencia after that as well. I just thought it was going to be the most miserable, the miserable 48 hours in existence yeah. of watching Tottenham in Champions League final and then Arsenal lose their semi final. It's a bit of,
0: it, um, it, it oversimplifies it slightly, but when you look at he was quicker to 50 Premier League goals than Thierry Henry, I mean, I know Henri had a slow start, but that kind of record, I think he, he got 15, 79 games. But then you look at that compared to the run he's been on towards the end of his time at Arsenal, and that kind of just shows you that the changes. Sorry, Sam, I've spoken over you a couple of times there, mate. What were you going to fire at? us? Well,
2: it's not particularly important. I'm just going to make a slight interjection um, after Charlie described Unai Emery as a dreadful manager. One thing I would say, what you can say about Emery, and this is not at all related to anything really good. Well, a little bit, actually is that Emery got the most out of Lacazette and Aubameyang individually and as a, as a, as a duo. Uh, it did more than Wenger did, and admittedly, Wenger had less time, and certainly more than Arteta ever has. The year that Emery was there, the full season Emery had, Aubameyang got 31 goals in 51 games and won the Golden Boot, and yet Lacazette won Player of the Year. So they were both, as you say, Charlie, really good that, that season. And I think the way that the, that has changed since Emery left since they tried to sort of restructure the team the following summer, is one of the the few things I would say in defence of Emery that he he managed to crack that strike force in a way that Arteta has not managed to do.
1: I think he also had them at their peak. To be fair, rather than
2: yeah,
1: the, yeah, you all the credit to you uh, know is that any like Emery picture you got framed on the wall behind me <laughs> signed <laughs> signed as well next to Callum Chambers,
0: <laughs> Vamos Arsenal. Um, Guys, let's um, let's just move ahead a little bit here. We've we know it's essentially a wage cutting exercise, I think we've we've kind of established over the course of the pod. They've also got rid of a couple of more bad eggs, arguably, that we saw them do last January as well. That's that's clean. We know the the no dickheads policy, as we've as it's been dubbed. But um what is next for Arsenal? You know, what what can the short-term and long-term ambitions be at this point when clearly finances for for reasons of COVID and, and beyond are are so important to the club off the field. Can they marry up with what the fans and clearly the players and Arteta wants to achieve on it? Do you think so?
2: I think if they keep their key players fit for the remainder of this season, they've got a very good chance of finishing in the top four. Uh, that would obviously, as Charlie's mentioned before in this pod, would would open up a lot of opportunities in terms of investment in the squad and rebuilding and buying the sort of. Caliber of striker that you, that they're going to want, or strikers that they're going to want. So I think that's a very much a possibility. I don't think there's much squad depth there, though. Um, and you look at what happened when suddenly Shakra and Party are out, and everything just goes goes chaotic and it falls apart. Um, obviously, yeah, Moel and are still around, so that's good to make sure of the make sure of the wins in the next few weeks. But but yeah, I mean, I'm certainly not ruling out. Uh, I don't think the, the summer business will necessarily hinder them in their push for the Champions League places but I think it might and that's the problem I think there will be times when they will look at the bench and think hmm we're a bit short of options here and that could be crucial in a, in a top four race against some very good teams with some very deep squads so perhaps the lack of Europe and the lack of cup competitions will be a huge advantage um, it's, it's possible but at this stage I wouldn't bet on it so I can see them finishing in Europa League places spending a fair amount in the summer and then you know the rebuild goes on would, would
0: argue it's, it's argue one,
1: though,
0: Go on, Charles. Go, on, Charles, you have to eat.
1: Mate. So the the start of the season, it's like what 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 was the aim for Arsenal? Was it really the Champions League or was it to get themselves back into the champ, uh, Europa League after two eight place finishes? I think maybe Arsenal are a little bit ahead of schedule and what they've done in the first half of the season has raised expectations a little bit. And you know, would would fifth or sixth be a disaster for Arsenal this season? You have to say it probably wouldn't. And um the frustration being that you know possibly they've let some they've let a chance of the top four slip through their grasp, with their lack of activity, certainly in terms of incomings in January. But I don't think fifth or sixth would be a disaster. I still think they've got a good chance, like Sam, of top four. I don't think Tottenham are anything special, despite the couple of signings they've made in January. Still don't think they're they're great. The difference being they've got two genuine world class forwards in their ranks who are you think are going to get them the goals that could push them over the line. You know, United, you just don't know what United are going to do. They've got certainly the strongest squad, I would say, out of everyone challenging for the top four, but has Ralph Ranier got a tune out of them yet? Not really. To suggest they're certainly going to go on an amazing run. So Arsenal got a good chance, but yeah, I think squad depth is looking. I think they've got 18 now outfield players in the squad, haven't they? Three goalkeepers, and they've got 18 outfield players in the squad One um, with Aubameyang leaving. I think they're a couple short, in that I, you know, I'd have loved to have seen a central midfielder come in. I think we saw what happened without Xhaka and Party, and I think that's almost as important as a striker, to be honest. Um, and the lack of balance in midfield has played a big, big part in Arsenal's struggles in front of goal in um, January. We saw in December when you had Party and Xhaka beginning to play together more and more often. We saw Party really beginning to find his form again after his struggles. Arsenal will look very good going forward because there was a balance in midfield, and that let the, the wide attackers really. Go forward, they played with a bit of freedom. They started to score goals. That dried up when the midfield just became a bit of a disaster zone. Really, once Jacker and Party were out, and um, so I think they might be end up being a little bit short. But you know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't rule it out. Now they've still got given themselves a very very good opportunity over over the next seventeen games. But I think, like Sam said, it's going to it will probably come down to if they can keep the key players fit, and they're going to need a little bit of luck with that.
0: I mean, obviously, our talk on here is always Arsenal-centric and we wouldn't have it any other way, given the name of the podcast and the people we have on. But you look at at that race for the top four now, and I know Spurs went and got a couple of Juve misfits yesterday, but no one in that race has signed anyone in this window of any note, really. So I know Arsenal arguably have let a lot more go. But, you know, United looked to clear some out. They ended up keeping Lingard. You know, Van der Beek went. There's a few others that they managed to shift. West Ham didn't get anyone in. I, you know, it's not in that regard. If you if you're piling up against their rivals, they've not actually lost um, much, if any, ground other than arguably that overdeal. But he wasn't even in the team, so I, th- I I do think it's it's still quite a straight fight. But I completely agree with you with you, Charles. I think if you'd have said to Arsenal at the start, Arsenal fans at the start of the season, you know, fifth or sixth, they'd have said yes. I think the the difference would have been they'd have liked a trophy at the end of it as well, wouldn't they? Whether that have been the League Cup or or the FA Cup.
1: Hmm. Yeah, I, I think so. I think there's, the, the way they've gone out of the cup competitions has been a bit of a disappointment, especially the FA Cup, which you kind of feels like Arsenal's bread and butter, doesn't it? The FA Cup, you want a decent run in that every season. To go out the way they did was a, was a big, big disappointment.
0: So I'll, uh, I'll stick it to us now, the boys. Oh, there is one thing I wanted to touch on. We are running out of time, but we are forgetting that Austin Trustee. Has uh has been signed today. So we've got two minutes left of this call. Sam would like to come to you, so you can tell us everything you know about him. I'm joking. Don't worry about it. Your face, then, said it all. Um. <laughs>
2: <laughs> well, uh, you know, what I would say um is obviously I don't know much about him as a player. I, I must admit my knowledge of MLS is pretty limited. But I would say it's quite interesting, if not very interesting, that he's obviously come from a cronky owned club. Um, and if it is, if this is the start now of slightly more um, a connected framework or, or what's the
0: word, you know, a slightly more, more enhanced... It? Is it the City Group? Is that what they're called?
2: Well, yeah. Is that, is that where it's headed? Um, I mean, as we've all been slammed that we're doing tran- January transfer stuff with Arsenal and beyond, I don't think any of us have given it much thought. But it is interesting that this is the first time, as far as I'm aware, that there's been crossover between two Cronky-owned football clubs.
1: Yeah. We'll do. Um, the difference, being, the difference being, it's not exactly a worldwide network, is it? It's just two clubs, <laughs> Colorado and Arsenal. Um, I'm not sure Arsenal are going to see too much benefit out of it. To be honest, I didn't even know to sign. Who's this guy? What are you guys talking about? It just totally went. I, it was right in the middle of the whole Bamiyang thing, going a bit mad, wasn't it? Just as it was emerging, it was going to be a free transfer. I missed it completely. Yeah, it's, well, it's starter, pretty so. easy
2: to keep it. It's pretty easy to keep it under the wraps when you. Uh, Literally owned both clubs.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Arsenal didn't even tweet it, did they?
0: My thanks to Sam and Charles for joining me today. I'll be back on Friday to introduce a compilation of our Guestaguna game. And normal service resumes next week when Arsenal actually start playing football matches again. Cheers.